everybody. Good to see you all. Well, these verses that were just read, in, in my opinion, are some of the most beautiful verses that we have in Scripture. Uh, they are most likely an early hymn that Paul is, is sharing with the church, probably some words that the church knows, and a beautiful summary of who Jesus is, what Jesus went through. I, I think, I know they weren't written in English, but I think it's rather beautiful in English. And I think it, it reads powerfully. And yet, the last couple weeks, as I reflected on these words and I prepared to share with you today, I felt a really deep grief. I felt a really deep grief, not so much for what these words say, but I felt for this grief for the ways that they're used. Since the, since the time they were penned to today, I felt some grief over the, the words of unity that we're going to read in just a moment, and these words of this hymn, how they were applied to people's life. So this hymn states that Jesus didn't regard equality as something to be grasped, right? This word grasped is, is a very violent word. Uh, in, in English, you can just like grasp a cup of coffee, but in the Greek, it's, it's a violent word. It's, it's something to be taken by force. He didn't see equality with God to be taken by force, like, like an insurrection, right? He didn't see that equality should be that, which is strange because Jesus is equal to God. And he didn't see this violent act to be needed to, to do this. Instead, he took on flesh like us. Him even says he became a slave, willing to die on the cross. And because of all of this, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And, and I just want to point out two things about this that are a bit of a critique on, on us and on how we got here, okay? So bear with me. We're not going to sit heavy all day, just four-fifths of the day, no. So the first one is this. Every knee bowing is not a forcible act. That's not a violent act. When I think of any setting where I've seen every knee bow, they are only on television or in movies. And truthfully, they're usually like in a bank heist. Somebody shows up with a gun, and everybody goes to the floor. The, the only other place that I've seen something like this is, is when I've been invited to visit a mosque, and I see people praying there. But in my just regular life of viewing things as if there's no consequence to my brain, which I probably should go deal with, it's always like in, in like a war movie and some new military leader comes into a space and in a way to flex power makes all the civilians bow or risk their lives. It's in a bank heist where someone covers up who they are, displays power and force and everybody goes to the ground, right? And the way that I have understood this growing up is that Jesus was the ultimate like warrior. And there's some benefit to the warrior stuff, but not, not, the, not the ways that we read into it. 
This is not a forcible act. Jesus is not going to come with intimidation and fear and make everybody knee bow. That's not what this is talking about. But there are parts of us, parts of our faith, that are wrapped around this like violent, forcible kind of injury, uh, imagery. And those parts we need to tease out. As we're reconstructing our faith, we can't have room for that. If Jesus didn't forcibly force his way into being an equal with God, then he is not going to force people's knees to bow. It's in this same humble posture. Knees are going to bow and tongues are going to confess because of the character of Christ. Because of reverence and awe. Because of realization of the sacrifice made by Jesus. The love of Jesus. The generosity of God that will bow. It's out of honor and respect. And the way that Jesus saw dignity in everyone that will be so moved. Not out of fear. Do we get that? You probably already know that. But there's parts of me this last couple of weeks that I had to like let go of as I did my little walk in Iroquois Park to be like, oh, again, I think there's, there's part of me that, that sees force, that sees violence, that sees the way that is not you. I need to let that go. And maybe you just need to hear someone say it. Second, the example given of Jesus not seeing equality as something that should be taken by force is the example given for all of us. Particularly, if there is any power or authority in your personhood. If, if you're somebody who has some authority, if you're somebody who has some power, if you're someone who has some privilege, then the example given to us is that we don't forcibly grasp for more, but that we follow the pattern of Jesus. This is very opposite of the history of the church. And we just need to be honest about that, right? The church has taken this verse, not every single person, but in general we have taken this verse and we have made life on earth miserable with the carrot of heaven for generations. Part of the foundation of this nation was on our original sin of racism and slavery. And it was buttressed by poor theology. People would actually say to people, you can remain a slave because Jesus did. And so what did Jesus do? Go do the same. You're okay. You'll have the promise of heaven. Of course, the mindset was a secondary heaven and all of those kind of things, but, but it was stay in your station, stay in your lane, stay in your position. It's okay that I have all privilege and you are a slave because after all, Jesus was. And then once slavery was no longer official, we found Jim Crow. And we found extreme differences in class and education barriers. And the story goes on and on and on in the ways that we have told some, you, you need to not grasp for equality. And then some particularly who look like me, 
and are the same gender as me, have used that as a way to maintain power, maintain authority, to keep all privilege and benefit from every system that we build out. This is not what this text is saying. As we have a panel next Tuesday on church hurt, these kinds of misreadings are where a lot of the church hurt comes from. I remember growing up, my grandpa would meet us for brunch every Sunday. We would go to Barnacle Bill's in the bowling alley, and he would get a ham and cheese omelet, and he would offer to pay the bill, and he never paid it once. (laughs) And he would come after church, and when I was old enough to ask him why, he said, when I was a young boy, I saw the life of my pastor, and I don't want anything to do with that God. I have other family members and other friends who either by people in the role that I'm in or in seats like yours or in the theology at large walked away. Like if that's who God is, I don't want anything to do with that God. And plenty of us have found our way into here, some of us as like a, a last gasp, right? Like I'll give it one more shot. I want to believe, but I don't currently believe I can believe. But I'm going to try. And it's verses like this misread where we strip out the beauty and use it to just fortify what we want where some of this damage happens. Whatever was meant at the time of Paul to the church of Philippi, here's what it is to us. Violent taking Force, fear, coercion, and guilt, these are not weapons we will carry. These are not ways that we will live. If Christ can be emptied, can empty himself on behalf of those that he loves, then we can empty ourselves on behalf of those that he loves. If Jesus can be poured out to the point of death, out of love, then we can aim the same. And if we suffer, we'll grieve with one another. And as all of Jesus passes through us, we will bend and knee like the, those before us. And the self-sacrificing love of Jesus is transformative for all time, including today. What does that look like? Well, Paul has some ideas that he says in the previous verses, and we're going to explore that for a minute. But first I want to pray. And we're going to pause, and we're going to pray slow for a minute, because there may be things we need to confess here. And confession belongs, right? There may be ways that we need to just bear witness to our, our own actions or the pain from the actions of others, or the ways that some of this sloppy theology has entered in and made its home in us, whether we knew or not. But more than me saying some things, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to speak in our midst, and we're going to just spend a slow two minutes praying, and I want to invite you to join me. Jesus, thank you that violent taking was never a part of who you were. 
Thank you that you had all the privilege and authority that anyone could ever imagine. You are God. And you didn't flaunt that before others. And God, today we repent for any violence that's in us. We repent for any ways that we have flaunted our our position with you as image bearers, as daughters, as sons. Ways that we have othered others. Pain that we've caused. As one church, we repent for any any ways that we have damaged folks, intentionally or unintentionally. For whatever authority you give us to represent the church at large, Jesus, we repent for only imagining that violence would bring people to their knees. Losing sight of the beauty and splendor of your generosity and your sacrifice. And at the same time, Jesus, some of us are really wounded. Some of us have been really damaged by these words and other words like this. Would you heal us tenderly? You give us courage to be honest, to hold on to what's you and leave behind what isn't. Do you continue to mend and heal your people? Thanks. In your name. Amen. If you have a, a Bible on your phone or on your person, I want to invite you to pull it out. We're not going to have other slides on here because I want you to be able to just look through these verses in whatever translation, bring up a couple translations, whatever you want to do. But we're going to look at uh, parts of the beginning of Philippians 2. But I want to invite you, before we move on from that, hymn that I really believe is a beautiful, beautiful hymn, I want to invite you to this week sit with that a couple times. Maybe slowly read over it, reflect on it, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. There's so much beauty and wonder, and I, we didn't even touch on that. We just kind of repented for misreading. So I want to invite you to read uh, yourself on that this week, okay? Okay. Well, Paul begins chapter 2 by saying... Then if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consoling word of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any deep affections and mercy, complete my joy. Well, this is a powerful list of clauses here, and, and in them, I believe what Paul is doing is he's pulling from everyone's collective memory. He's pulling from their memory 
towards this encouragement in Christ. He's reminding them of the time that they were consoled by the words of another, of the fellowship that they had with the Spirit, of of acts of deep affection and the mercies that they gave and received. And we know what this is like. Those of you who've been here for a while, you, you remember back that these were the conversations of our first Sundays in the school where we met. This was setting up each week and and feeling the excitement about being together. These are the reflections on how we learned to care for one another through COVID and the emotions that we felt when we came into this space for the first times. When we had brilliant ideas like, hey, we need to bring blankets and extra blankets because it's cold. And how some of us were like, it's so cold and it's so dark and then someone new would walk in and be like, but it's really beautiful. And remind us that it's really beautiful. This is where we recollect our memories of all the times together. Paul is doing the same, and in this recollection, he has this boldest command, complete my joy. Now, his joy isn't completed by being released from prison. It's not by having all those people who are against him face justice. It's, it's none of those kinds of things. Instead, it's all about this Philippian church. He urges them to collect memories from before of what God has done in their community, and then he says, complete my joy. That is, contemplate towards action the same thing by having the same love, same soul, by contemplating this one thing. Okay, I know your translation didn't say contemplate towards action, but I think that's really what, what he's getting at here. The Greek word is a rich word, and this is one of the places where English is a little lacking. It, often it's translated as, as think, and that's, that's fine. Thinking is, is, is correct, but I believe that the Greek word that Paul uses has a richness that's missed if we just use the word think. There's more going on here. Then RSV says, be of the same mind. The NIV says, be like-minded. These are helpful, yet, yet I think that there's something that's distinctly different in what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying that we need to have the same thoughts. He's not saying a, something about uniformity or, or agreement in the way that many in our culture talk about it. He's describing an engaged communal work. That's what this is. It's not passively listening to a voice telling you what you need to believe or what you need to do or what you need to think about. Instead, it's this community deeply mining their lives, the Scriptures, one another, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit to discover what unity looks like where nobody loses their distinctiveness. That's what this is. He's saying do the work of deeply thinking, contemplate, not just to stay in your head, but to leak out into your actions. Do this work. Now, this has been a concern for us since we started. We come from different places, and we come in different bodies. Some of us are very used to the world listening to us. If I'm honest, it is, it is more rare that I go into a space where someone doesn't want my opinion. That's weird, but that's true. And some of us are used to being silenced. 
And there are some of us who rarely go into a space where that space wants their opinion. And part of the work being together is people like me need to talk last. Need to learn to listen. And those who rarely get to talk or express opinions or even do the work of wondering what they think or believe need to be given the grace and the space to come up with thought. To wander through what's true and what isn't with listening ears near them. That's part of this work. Our experiences have made us who we are and how we see the world, each other, and God differently because of this. As we've formed as a church, we've often wondered what this unity looks like. Do we have to think the same? Do I have to silence my perspective in order to agree with another? Is unity uniformity? Or can distinction be celebrated in grounds to praise our God? Paul's inviting us to not settle for cheaply discovered uniformity. And instead, do the hard work of discerning true unity. Contemplating the same thing. Doing the work of mining our lives. And trusting one another to share what we discover. And honoring one another with dignity to listen. And be formed by what one another says. Paul goes on to this word translated into being same-souled. Does that sound scary to you? Super intimidating. Sometimes I'm not okay with myself having a soul. I don't know if I want to share with people. (laughs) This word is often translated as being in full accord or being one spirit. But again, I think the Greek is a little stronger. Hawthorne writes that the Philippians are to share one soul possess a common affection, desire, passion, sentiment for living together in harmony. So again, let's be honest. Let's just stay there. Some of us are just discovering our voices, right? Some of us are just now learning what our favorite food is, what we think on something. If we're a morning person or a night person, some of us have just gone through life and like, oh, I can, th- th- I can have some agency here. And it's not because you're foolish or anything like that. It's just sometimes life just gets us to a speed and keeps us going. And then we find our voice. And we start to be honest about what makes us distinct. And this can sound like a call to conformity, but I don't think that's it at all. I think harmony is something completely different. This sharing of one soul or being same-souled, it, it is harmony, but this harmony is something that I have heard us desire. And I would say that many of us imagine being in a community like this. And I say imagine because I don't think we've experienced it. As, he, as Paul describes harmony and unity... He, he makes this quick pivot. And he pivots to talking about what it doesn't look like. And sometimes this is the most helpful thing for us, right? When we define what something is, we need to also define what it isn't. And so he says, uh, it's not according to selfish rivalry, nor according to vain glory. But let me ask you a question on this. If Paul is writing to an individual church that he knows... 
And if you go a little later in the letter, we, we see that there's some conflict between some individuals. Do you think that Paul is probably writing about problems to the unity, obstacles to the unity in that specific church? Like, that makes some sense, right? So then maybe we can take the general principle of what are the roadblocks to unity, and we can be honest about it for us, too. Like, I, I think these are good ones. Rivalry, yeah, that could, that could sneak in. It could sneak into any community. When people start to find their voice, there can be a jealousy and a rivalry of, well, that person gets to grow and mature and is starting to flourish, and, and I want to. And there can be a rivalry that sets place within us, a, a competitiveness that, that acts on a God who is limited and a space that's limited, and, and it could easily enter into a church like ours. In this vainglory, this is another trap that we could easily fall into. It's an empty type of pride that we're not immune to. But I wonder what those roadblocks would really be for us. Maybe those two. But probably the better conversation for us to have in small groups, with one another, as a large group, as a leadership team, is what are the roadblocks to unity? Is there a pressure to think, act, or believe correctly, and therefore not be transformed by any of it? Do we feel a pressure to point out and, and get justice from past pains before we experience unity today? Do we find ourselves wanting to blend in or wanting to stand out? What do you see? What have you faced? What are these roadblocks? That's the point that Paul is talking about here. Is that we need to be honest about what's in our way. And that includes us. And after looking at what unity doesn't look like, he continues to dig deeper into what it is in verse 3 and 4. He says, but with humility, by considering others as superior to you, not that each of you pay attention to yourself, but also paying attention to the things of each other. In the Greco-Roman world, humility was not a virtue. In this world, false humility is a great virtue. Actual humility does not get you followers on the TikTok or anything else. But he describes what this humility looks like. And it's not simply seeing each other as equals. And I think that's fascinating. Because I think we would dream of being equal. To find a space that we are equals seems beyond our imagination. Not where it's said that we're equal, but that we're actually equal. That there's actual equity. Like, we dream of that, pray for that. We, we protest for that, right? But Paul brings us even further past that. I want you to imagine this radical call that he gives us here. He says that we are to consider others superior to us. And that he's not suggesting that we have like unhealthy self-image. He's not suggesting mental illness. He, he, that's not that. 
He's saying there is something profoundly powerful if a community will gather together and say, I am going to see you as superior, and you see me as superior, and then we don't have to worry about our needs. I'm going to listen to you when you express your needs, and you listen to me. And if we seek to be there for one another, to care for one another, there's going to be no lack. And imagine what that would be like. Imagine us, but even different. Imagine being so committed to one another that you live and act as though the rest of the group is superior to you. That you know your needs, you're not unaware, but you're not worried about your needs. Instead, you just bring them to the community and trust whatever happens, happens. And the rest of the room, their priority is your needs, is your well-being, is your wholeness. There's a mutuality here. You know the needs of the group and seek the wholeness of the people present, and they know your needs and they seek your wholeness as well. But this gets back to where we began, right? Because we began saying, hey, don't seek equality. Some of you just be okay with a lower station in life. And then others are like, look at me. And that's the fear of this whole thing. I don't want to come and live sacrificially for a community that then doesn't notice, doesn't care, doesn't do the same. I don't want to be the one who jumps off the cliff only to have everybody else be like, no, that's too far. (laughs) I'm not doing that one. And that's why I really think since the, the moment that the letter to the Philippians was written, we don't know of a community who who did this long term. For moments, for a weekend at a retreat, for that moment 30 years ago that we still eat off because it was so powerful and so beautiful, but so much courage is required to live this way day in and day out when it gets to a Tuesday at 3.15 to still be doing that. But that's the invitation. To be so committed to the vision and example of Christ that we choose to be courageous enough to think highly of one another as if the others are superior, as if your needs, your desire, your your wholeness is what I want most. Knowing and trusting that you feel the same. And that's why after this, we get this beautiful hymn. Saying that we know that one did this. We know that one lived this way. Jesus had every reason to violently take what was his. Instead, he became like us. And he came to a people like us. And he died oppressed and misunderstood. Only to know life again and invite us into the same Not an invitation by force or by violence, but by love and by generosity, by surrendering control, by being misunderstood. And leaning in anyways. This is the Jesus I know. Guys, I've I've been 
a pastor for what feels like 10 million years. And I just keep needing to repent that like Jesus, I, I didn't know. I've taught, but I didn't know. I got you wrong. I misunderstood you again. I misunderstood me again. I misunderstood your people again. And you know what Jesus does every time? He leans in. Walks beside. Keeps going. You see, this Jesus inspires me. Because of the way that Jesus lived and chose to die, I want to love more. And frankly, I want to live more. I want to live large, generous, not like platformed large, but like with people that I love large. I don't want to hoard, violently taking what I think is mine or protecting what I've already taken. I want to live free and truly live. And that's our invitation from this passage. To believe that maybe, just maybe, we don't have to use violence to take and then to keep. And maybe, just maybe, people will fall in love and choose to bend their knee to Jesus because they see who Jesus is. We don't have to force them to. Like he's some vegetable to children. <laughs> that kind of made me laugh. <laughs> That's not in the notes. In a small way, we get to practice this in a few minutes. We're going to pack these bags for our friends at the Turkish American Center. And we're, we're not getting anything back. That's not the point. I'm not telling them, here's what our faith is, and you need to understand that. That's not the point. We're not giving them foods that we like. We're not saying, hey, here's, here's, here's what you should eat. We're, best we know, these are, these are the foods that they like to eat and the tea that they like to drink. And not to have this big us and, and, and them thing, but like, hey, we get to celebrate your tradition and be a part of you to just say, hey, we're cheering for you. We're praying with you, not against you. We're hoping you find peace and wholeness as we seek peace and wholeness. We hope you find life. One of the things that encouraged me the most of, about you all, last week we said we were going to pack these little bags. We told you what it cost. By the time I got home, we had 90 more dollars than it cost. And so we're just pooling more money together. And if you want to be a part of it, Joshua's got the envelope. You can give him more money and we're going to just find other ways that we can practice being us. Practice laying ourselves down. Risk being misunderstood. Practice loving and caring and breathing deep the fact that Jesus is much more than we ever asked or imagined. I want to close by reading the hymn again. I want to invite you to sit comfortable. If you want to close your eyes, close your eyes. If you want to put your hands out to receive on, on your lap, do that.
But I'll close with these words before we receive communion. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that the name given to Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.